should we just not get involved in the problems of the world, politics, justice, and so on? Should we stay out of that fray? Because after all, Paul says that we shouldn't get involved in civilian affairs. We're going to drill down on this a little bit today, uh, focus uh, where we've been, and look forward to where we're going, the All Things to All People podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast with Michael Burns. We're in luck. At least I am because I happen to be Michael Burns. So it makes sense that I'm here on this podcast. I don't know if you're in luck by that, but I'm enjoying doing this and having a good time. I especially love when we have guests on and all of that. Although that said, there won't be a guest today. It's just me flying solo. And this is actually, as you listen to this episode, this is the first day that I am off on a bit of a ministry sabbatical, but we're going to keep fresh new episodes coming on. Uh, They're already loaded and ready to automatically uh, upload or whatever you call it. They'll be here uh, weekly, uh, same time and date, you know, every Monday, uh, pretty much. Uh, New episodes, fresh new episodes. So um, keep tuning in and we'll be back before you know it. So today we're continuing on Escaping the Beast. We're in chapter 18, a chapter called Planting Our Feet, where take a little bit of a retrospective. I like to do that sometimes when I write a book. It's like, okay, let's take a chapter here, sort of take a deep breath, you know, and kind of just survey the land in general of, all right, what are some issues that we haven't talked about yet? And let's get that straight so that we can move forward into sort of some specific conclusions. But one of the questions that often comes up is, you know, should we, should we not get engaged in the issues of the world? Or are we doing that? And you know, should we not, or, you know, are you saying we shouldn't and we are? And so there's, you know, sort of both sides. And I think I've addressed enough, hopefully in previous episodes, uh, maybe ad nauseum where I keep making the point, I am not saying that we should withdraw that just because you're saying, Hey, maybe let's take a, a critical eye here a bit at the role of Christians in politics and what that might look like, how that might look differently, how we might think about it differently, does not mean I'm saying we withdraw from the issues of the world. And I think I've been clear on that. But then there's this other side of, well, doesn't Paul say in 2 Timothy 2, 4, that we should, uh, he tells Timothy, don't get involved in civilian affairs. And for the Christian, doesn't that mean the issues of the world. And I'll state at the beginning here that I think that's a a pretty significant proof text of that verse. In other words, a, a proof text is where you take a verse and you you just read it in an isolated fashion outside of the context of what's being said or considered or discussed in the passage itself, what the author actually has in mind. And then we use 
words from it and it starts to mean something different than what the author meant. For example, Jeremiah 29 is perhaps the classic example of that where it says, behold, I know the plans I have for you, plans you know, not to harm you, but to prosper you, and so on. And we look at that as a life verse, and we'll say, oh, see, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, here you go. This is what that verse says. But that verse is in the context of a pretty horrible situation, exile. You know, the Israel's, Israelites have been taken away from their homeland. Jerusalem's been destroyed. And God, in essence, is saying, look, here are your marching orders. Here's how I want you to live in exile. I know this seems terrible. I, I know you look and you say, how can this be good? But ultimately, I have plans to prosper you. That's what's coming in the long run. And you who are in exile, you may never see it with your own eyes. But that's, this is ultimately what I'm doing through you collectively as a people. Your life actually might be quite challenging and not at all the way you would want it to go. So that's a proof text. And in 2 Timothy 2, it, we're not going to get into a big, long exegesis of that passage. But in general, Paul is calling Timothy to a focused life of ministering the gospel to people. And in verse 3, he calls him to remember, hey, this is this life is about sacrifice. It is There is going to be suffering involved. It's about laying your life down for others. That's the focus. And then in the next three verses, he uses uh, images, examples from the life of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer to encourage commitment, self-control, discipline, and preparedness in his ministry and in building up the life of the church. And so, in short, I would say the call to say, hey, you know, a soldier doesn't get often focused on civilian affairs is saying, remember, your life is to be aimed at, at sacrificing for the benefit of others. That's what it looks like, and, and that's going to involve suffering. Don't lose your commitment. So he's it's not really in there. He's not saying, you know what, don't care about the world. In fact, if anything, it's kind of the opposite. Um, do be a light. Do stay involved in, in the work of the ministry. As always, I think, if Paul was laying out every single point, he would say using the weapons of the kingdom and not the weapons of the world, as he spells out in 2 Corinthians 10. But nowhere, I think, does Scripture say, hey, Christians should not be involved in the issues of the world. Quite the opposite. Jesus very much had a heart for the marginalized, the oppressed. His first sermon in Luke 4 he says uh, the gospel, his first public sermon, the gospel is good news for the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the prisoner, that sort of thing. And he would continue to stress that, and so would his followers throughout the New Testament. So there's no command to, hey, just be focused on getting people to heaven and don't worry about what's going on in the world. That's a distraction. No, because this is a kingdom life. And so a kingdom life shows a totality of 
of life, how how we respond to the very real issues of the world and offer unique and prophetic and alternative options for the world. At the same time, there is no scriptural mandate to be involved in public life, politics, that sort of thing, as a means to the kingdom being involved. And so there's there's kind of this middle ground that we find. And in focusing on chapter 18 today, I'm going to do what we haven't done very often this season as we focused on escaping the beast. I did it almost exclusively in season one, the first 40 or so episodes where we were looking at all things to all people in which we were really going through each chapter, reading it, stopping at times, discussing it. But, you know, it's it's a podcast and an audiobook in season one. This season, of course, we haven't done that uh, nearly as much. Today, I am going to do that. I'm going to pretty much read through chapter 18 with perhaps an occasional side thought or break, but I'm really going to focus on the text of chapter 18. So uh, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So here we go. In 1976, Baptist minister Jerry Falwell Sr. initiated a series of I Love America rallies across the United States that continued for several years. I can recall attending one in my hometown when I was no more than six or seven years old. They were aimed at breaking down the traditional separation of church and state that most American churches had respected for two centuries. Falwell eventually turned the momentum from those rallies into a national organization launching the Moral Majority in 1979. This was arguably the rise of the Christian right in the United States. The national group aimed at coalescing Christians into a political force to enact their political agenda throughout the state and national governments. And by the early 1980s, they had so captured the imagination of at least the majority of white evangelicals in America that they had become a political force of a size and type never seen before. Soon, if a Republican politician wanted to stand a chance for election to a national office, it was a necessary journey to seek the endorsement and backing of the moral majority. They were pro-America, in favor of legislated morality, unwaveringly pro-life, and unquestionably conservative. They wielded their political power and inaugurated a series of culture wars across the country as they sought to flex their political muscles to get their agenda put into law. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they would help the nation become pure again by stamping out sin. Their primary tool? Political power. Ed Dobson, vice president of the Moral Majority in the early years, now admits that the movement had a distinct lack of a coherent and biblical political philosophy. The approach they utilized, according to Dobson, was ready, aim, I'm sorry, the, let me read that again. The approach that they utilized, according to Dobson, was ready, fire, aim, buoyed by a belief that America had a favored nation status with God, all the while, quote, neglecting what the Bible teaches about the poor, unfairly attacking enemies, and using manipulative fundraising techniques. The moral majority rushed into the political fray and seized political power as a Christian movement without having a clear theology 
on the role of the kingdom of God in the world, or on Christians utilizing political power. Self-admittedly, they rushed in without a well-thought-out position. Not having a clear philosophy of the kingdom and our role in politics can be rather detrimental and is not a mistake that we can afford to make in the times in which we live. Before we consider further what our positions might be, let's look at a few other Christian political philosophies down through history. Geneva. In 1536, Calvin was invited to join the Refor- I'm sorry, John Calvin was invited to join the Reformation that was swelling in Geneva, Switzerland. By 1541, he was offered an invitation to lead the Church of the City. Calvin quickly shook past early opposition and instituted new forms of church government. In short order, he forced out his opponents and had an iron grip on the government of Geneva itself. Calvin set about creating a secular government that was informed and instructed by the church alone. He believed that the purpose of secular government was, quote, to foster and protect the external worship of God, defend pure doctrine, and the good condition of the church, mold our con- conduct to civil justice, reconcile us one to another, and uphold and defend the common peace and tranquility. So the church and state became virtually indistinguishable under Calvin, who argued that the responsibility of the state was to nurture human flourishing and cultivate upright conduct and behavior. Geneva was to be a Christian utopia, but it didn't work out that way. In theory, there was a separation of church and state in Geneva. In day-to-day reality, it was a virtual theocracy and a stifling authoritarian state in many respects. Calvin's Geneva did not take kindly to opposing thought. Critics were executed, like Michael Servetus, who was burned at the stake for heresy when he would not repent and embrace Calvin's view on Christian living and beliefs. In supporting such such action, Calvin was united with the thinking of other Christian groups of his day, whether Lutherans, Anglicans, or Catholics. In the 17th century, heretics were to be executed. The Amish, not more than a couple of hours from where I grew up, is a community of Amish believers. The Amish are a Christian group whose roots can be traced back to Swiss-German Anabaptists. Now, they believe that technology that is not spiritually helpful to the group should be rejected. So they become known for simple living, plain dress, the use of horse and carriage, and a tendency to reject most modern conveniences and advances. There are over a quarter million Amish spread across the United States and Canada, with the highest concentration in the state of Pennsylvania. The Amish are strict pietists, meaning that they have largely withdrawn from active engagement in the affairs of the, in the, affairs of the world. They live rather insulated lives and remain separated from the culture around them. Citizens who live in areas where the Amish reside will see them from time to time and may interact briefly with them through one of their businesses, such as crafting and selling fine furniture. But at all practical levels, the Amish try not to be impacted by the culture, and they have virtually no impact on it. The Amish have grown increasingly distant from modern society. They educate children in their own schools, pay taxes that they must pay, and have been given exemption from participating in Social Security. 
They don't engage in politics as a general rule, do not participate in the military, and have minimal influence on modern society outside their own community. Wilberforce. A young man named William Wilberforce was radically changed from listening to the preaching of a former slave trader named John Newton, widely known for penning the beloved hymn Amazing Grace. The England of Wilberforce's youth was built on the slave trade and ever-expanding colonialism. Wilberforce, a promising young politician, was mesmerized by Newton's presentation of the gospel and was convicted to turn from his sin and declare Jesus as Lord, wanting to leave politics to spend his life in service to the king. Newton dissuaded him from that, convincing him to use his influence for the benefit of others calling him to an Esther-like role of considering that God may have placed him into public life for such a time as this. Wilberforce became fixated on ending slavery and slave trading in the British Empire and was determined to use his political life toward that end. In describing the lasting impact that Wilberforce's career had on British society and history, Steve Monsma highlights five principles that guided Wilberforce throughout his life. First, his deep personal commitment to Jesus' kingdom transformed every aspect of his life. Second, he did not act emotionally or without thought. He was part of a group that would come to be known as the Clapham Group. This group prayed, planned, and thought through their actions carefully, seeking to do nothing more than show the kingdom of God to the world in which they lived. Third, they understood that they would face fierce opposition and persecution, but would continue to work for the benefit of others despite the hardship. Fourth, they worked for the good of the oppressed first, and then the greater good of society. They avoided becoming a special interest group that sought only to protect the narrow interests of their fellow Christians or a particular social class. Fifth, they took up causes very slowly and only after careful examination of the facts and a tremendous amount of prayer and Bible study. They often took years before taking a position and deciding to take up a cause publicly. I'll break in here and say that does not mean I'm endorsing and saying, oh, if you look back at everything Wilberforce engaged in or supported, that I would uh, agree with that in principle. But I, I highlight this as a different option and and one definitely worth studying and considering. Wilberforce and his compatriots all always stood up for the oppressed but sought justice for all, including the oppressors. Even when seeking to bring an end to slavery, although they despised it, they worked toward compensating slave owners so they would not be left penniless or treated with spite or vengeance. And I understand that that would, uh, was controversial and would be controversial, but this is, again, a description of their kingdom mindset. Let's move on. Political philosophy. Each Christian movement or group has a political philosophy, whether they realize it or not. Some groups have had systematic theologies and approaches to secular politics. Other groups have not clearly examined their approach or have attempted to avoid political thought altogether. But not having a philosophy is a philosophy of its own. Each Christian movement or group has... Uh, I'm sorry, I started to read the wrong paragraph. Let me get to the right paragraph. The Christian right and groups like the moral majority took the road of political power as a means to an end, but did not have a political vision driving or setting the boundaries for them. 
As a result, they found themselves shackled together with one political party at a great cost to the kingdom of God. Poll after poll demonstrates that most Americans now regard Christianity more as a political block than a spiritual movement, often citing judgmentalism and forced morality and hypocritical morality at that as the primary characteristics of modern Christianity. I'll pause for a minute to let that sink in. That is a tragedy. Even critics of the Christians of the first three centuries did not charge them with judgmentalism. Their chief criticisms were that they were reckless in their lack of fear of death. They foolishly lived like they were family with people of all social classes and nationalities, and they undiscerningly loved all people. The rush to impose Christian will through political power has left our modern society with a bad taste in its mouth and zero understanding of what the kingdom truly is. Calvin's Geneva purported to be a Christian utopia, and in many ways it was wonderful. But it eventually developed a dark, oppressive side and could not be maintained because they attempted to establish the kingdom through means not appropriate for the kingdom. Today... Sweden is one of the most atheistic cultures in the world, though at one time the official state church there followed Calvin's teaching. A more modern example of this approach would be Zambia of the early 1990s. In 1991, the southern African country selected Frederick Chiluba to be its next president. Chiluba declared that Zambia would be a Christian nation. He he filled his cabinet with evangelical Christians and issued a decree that said, I submit the government and the entire nation of Zambia to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I further declare that Zambia is a Christian nation that will seek to be governed by the righteous principle of the word of God. Historically, when a country purports itself to be a Christian nation and vows to govern itself according to biblical standards, it never shows the world the kingdom of God. Chaluba's administration was no different. Author Ronald Sider notes that Chaluba violated human rights, tortured opponents in custody, bought votes, and allowed widespread corruption so he could run a third term. He even used tear gas on groups who opposed him. Although he was exonerated of any charges in Zambian courts, despite overwhelming evidence, he was eventually found guilty by a UK court of stealing $46 million dollars. So much for the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Amish instinct to withdraw from society owes more to tradition than to carefully thought out philosophy, although that's not to imply that they have not carefully thought through their positions. They seemingly have been so swayed by the desire not to be corrupted by society and so informed by a past of persecution that their withdrawing has left them practically incapable of being salt or light. They are ineffective at bringing anyone beyond their own children into their version of kingdom living and give little thought to the life of the world. Wilberforce represents another approach. It was an attempt to apply the values of the kingdom to the public sphere. He fought his whole life to defend the oppressed, believing that in rare cases, the political sphere would need to be entered to make change. Few have been able to follow his model without becoming part of the system themselves and losing any kingdom distinctiveness they may have had. 
There's yet another strain of thinking, one for which I did not provide a specific example here. That's the philosophy of the dominionists. They tend to believe that the entire scriptures, including the Israel model and the Old Testament, provide the blueprint for what human government should look like, and that it's the duty of Christians to take over their countries province by province, if need be, and apply the rule of the kingdom of God to all aspects of their land. This, they believe, will be for the benefit of all society, even if people do not want such a ruling force. And I I will add that perhaps the clearest voice of uh, that particular approach is a a group, a website, uh, a conglomeration of authors called American Vision. Back to the reading. My own spiritual community falls into the category of not having a systematic approach to politics in modern society. We're a group that's very committed to living with Jesus as Lord and takes seriously the call to spread the gospel to the people of all nations. But a systematic approach to politics is non-existent. And the topic is usually ignored altogether in fear that bringing it up may cause disunity. And I'll add, of course, there's always exceptions to this, but I'm speaking in generalities here. That leaves us in a vulnerable and untenable position for the long haul. We are a diverse fellowship that has churches around the world, and each congregation is committed to reflecting the diversity of its area. That means that these diverse local churches all have a wide variety of backgrounds, cultures, and experiences on display in the lives and history of its members. It also means that two distinct strands of political approach have become part of our communities. Some eschew politics altogether and maintain that we need only worry about the gospel. Politics doesn't matter, according to this group. The other approach is to maintain political involvement, but do so uncritically, bringing in whatever political beliefs and approaches we had when becoming a Christian, sometimes with slight changes based on certain convictions formed after our conversion. As you can imagine, this can leave a church deeply divided. That's not to imply that we all can or should think the same, but I do believe that it's naive and dangerous to ignore political philosophy and largely take on a don't-ask, don't-tell ethos. Excuse me. I had to cough there, and I started to push the cough button, and I think I pushed it too soon and cut off the word ethos. So I had to say it again. There you go. Back to the reading. This vulnerability was exposed quite clearly in the churches in my tradition in the United States. During the 2016 presidential elections, many disciples who had kept quiet their political beliefs for years were suddenly quite visible in their support for Donald J. Trump. Some of his rhetoric appealed to them, and they were emboldened by other members who had been quite vocal in their support and approval of President Obama. Thinking that it was okay to let their affiliations be known now, the Trump supporters in the fellowship spoke up but were shocked to find that this support deeply hurt the feelings of others, especially brothers and sisters of color. Suddenly, a deep rift was exposed in the fellowship. Was the problem that one group was supporting the wrong party or person? Or was it that both sides had embraced political beliefs based on their background and experience that remained unchanged and untouched by a consistent approach to the kingdom and politics throughout our fellowship? 
So should we just leave politics alone? The world of politics and political engagement is complicated. There are no clear-cut answers that hold true in every situation. That makes it even more challenging for the Christian community because most of us prefer a few easy steps or principles that we can apply simply in every situation without having to give things much thought. That sort of lazy approach is not available here. Due to the complications and headache-inducing complexities of these situations, many who pledged their life to King Jesus are tempted to throw up their hands and leave politics out there for the world, thinking they can safely ignore it within the secure confines of the church. But it's a mistake to attempt to completely ignore the world of politics or just withdraw into a pious shell, claiming that the only legitimate function of the church is evangelism that's focused on personal salvation and showing people how to be forgiven of their sin. I can see at least six reasons why doing so would be a huge mistake for kingdom citizens. Withdrawing looks like the church does not care about the problems of the world. God plans to renew his beautiful creation one day. Matthew 19.28, Revelation 21.1-5 for just a couple examples. He does not plan to just ball it up and throw it away for a disembodied spiritual realm called heaven. Letting the world burn while we engage in an evacuation-style evangelism that can't be bothered with the issues that people face every day is offensive and hurtful to a world that currently knows only the present age. Completely withdrawing from all things political is tantamount to wishing the world to keep warm and well-fed while doing nothing about their immediate needs, James 2.16. We should take care not to become so enamored with issues of justice and other political engagements that we lose sight of the kingdom and being the prophetic community. But we are called to be a light to the world, and that starts with offering samples of the age to come right here in the real problems of the present age. We can never offer complete solutions, but we certainly have samples to attract people to the future reality of God's kingdom that is broken into the present realm. The problem here is that it's far too common to call anything controversial and in the public square a political topic these days. If our instinct is to withdraw, then all we need is to hear the word political and we check ourselves out. We need to find a way to be engaged in the world without being drawn into the political power struggles of the world. Thus, we don't withdraw, but we also refuse to use the weapons of the world. Complete withdrawal leaves the world without the true salt and light. Bland food with no saltiness can be hard to eat, and a room with no light is dangerous. The kingdom offers salt and light by being visible in the real world and showing them a different way. We are the blueprint to God's future, and without it, the world is left to build with no vision for what things should look like. For many... Withdrawing from the world of political engagement means that we simply will not engage in thinking about politics. But that does really mean that we will not be affected by it. Nor does it mean that there are not issues in which we should engage. We need to have a well-thought-out approach, because not having one opens us up to mistakes and being constantly duped and swindled by groups seeking to use the church for their own purposes, it leaves us to become pawns of the conmen who've learned to speak our language rather than being representatives of the king. When a church community 
refrains from having a vision of political engagement, it becomes prone to the divisions and varying worldly political views that its members bring with them into the church. We must remember that becoming active in issues that are political or have been labeled political is not the same thing as being political or becoming involved in partisan politics. Withdrawing causes the kingdom of God to lose the voice of the prophetic community. Taking up that role in the world takes tremendous thought and effort as we consider how the principles of God's word for his people will apply in each generation and situation. And finally, withdrawing will rob the world of a chance to see the sacrificial love of Christ in action and deny them an opportunity to see what it looks like when he is king. This means they will not have a true choice between living an empire-approved life or the kingdom alternative. I don't believe that any of the above examples from Geneva, the Amish, or the Dominionists provide a clear vision of how we might engage in the 21st century. Wilberforce's example is a much closer approach, although he engaged in the political system more than I might advocate in normal circumstances. He was faced with unique times and seeked and seemed to largely keep his purpose focused on the sacrificial means and methods of the kingdom to achieve the specific goal of bringing the slave trade to an end. One of the greatest influences on Christian theology and political theory of the 20th century was Reinhold Nybar. His contention was that the church had an obligation to bring its social agenda to bear on secular society to transform it for the better. The assumption being that the best way, and maybe the only way, to achieve justice was through politics. So into the fray, the church must go. On the other end of that argument was 20th century missionary and philosopher Leslie Newbigin who argued that once Christians buy into the concept that every human has the right to develop their potential to the greatest extent, it is a short jump to believing that the only reasonable means of securing and protecting those rights is through the nations. Whatever means we then must utilize to establish and preserve those rights, we willingly swallow. The kingdom must neither withdraw from society nor accept that its purpose is to transform. To accept Nybar's premise that our role is to transform society is to invite the wolf into the hen house. In their seminal book, Resident Aliens, Helberwas and Willimon assert that, quote, the church does not exist to ask what needs doing to keep the world running smoothly and then to motivate our people to go and do it. They argue that the political task of Christians is to be the church rather than to transform the world. When our obsession becomes to transform the world, we will hardly notice that, in fact, the world has tamed the church. Hauerwas and Willimon demonstrate how Nybar brought a Constantinian approach by setting the discussion as though our only two options are a world-affirming church or a world-denying sect. These are still the only two options in the mind of many. We either enter the fray completely to transform the world by being part of the system, or we withdraw completely. Those two options are so entrenched in people's minds that I can almost guarantee that I will be accused by some who read this book or hear me speak on the topic of advocating for withdrawal from society simply because I call for an alternative. We are to be what Hauerwas and Willimon call the community of the cross, or what I've referred to as the prophetic community. 
It's a group that understands that the most effective and resilient thing the church can the church can be is to be an alternative community. It is to that alternative model of engagement that we will now turn. In the next two chapters, I, I'm going to propose nine principles that will guide us toward a philosophy of engagement with the world. But first, a few additional thoughts. Three anchors. As we consider principles for political engagement, for citizens of God's kingdom, there are three guiding truths that should anchor our thought process. The first is that the values of empire and the values of the kingdom of God are at complete odds with one another. Trying to pretend that they can overlap or that a nation can be a Christian nation is simply to erase the true kingdom from the equation. The second is that the more a nation purports to be Christian, the more likely it brings disrepute to the name of Christ. Nations can try to fulfill their role in a just and kind way. Some nations will be far more moral than others. The kingdom can encourage that and call for it, but nations cannot be Christian. They have a role to play that's rooted in the present age. As an alternative of the age to come, the kingdom will stand as a stark contrast to even nations that seek to be benevolent and kind. However, even the best-meaning nations are a mixed bag and typically have a dark side. I've seen this in my own country for centuries now. The United States has claimed to be a Christian nation, virtually synonymous with the kingdom of God. Around the world, other nations have taken that message at face value. They look at the immorality, the massive pornography industry, the greed that the U.S. has shown around the world, and the way the majority has treated indigenous people and minorities and the military machine. And Many have associated those things with Christianity. It's difficult to deny that this association has played some part in the resurgence of Islam and other non-Christian religions around the world. We must make a clear distinction in our mind between our country of residence and or birth and the kingdom of God. They are not the same and will not ever have the same agenda. The third is that the degree to which anything is Christian is the degree to which it acts like Jesus. Jesus' friend John revealed that whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's simple and straightforward and must be our standard of evaluation for anything or anyone that claims to be Christian. Does it echo Jesus' teaching? Do they love like Jesus? Do they sacrifice for the benefit of others the way Jesus did? Simply using religious language or appealing to the Bible on occasion doesn't make us part of the kingdom any more than putting a Lamborghini logo on a Toyota Prius makes it a Lamborghini. When we embrace a nation or even a church that behaves in ways that are foreign to or even in flat opposition to the principles of the kingdom of God, we transform that entity into a potentially destructive force that serves as a double danger because not only are people robbed of the chance to see the true kingdom, they are shown darkness and told that it is light. That will make them hesitant to being open to the true light when it arrives. Again, what I'm aiming for here is a clear understanding of the difference between the nations and the kingdom. Even when a nation does good, it is not the kingdom of God. Just to be clear, that does not mean that I'm saying that any institution that is not the kingdom of God is evil or must be avoided like the plague by Christians. 
a group that fights for justice for wrongly accused prisoners on death row, an agency that provides food for those in need, or a country that acts benevolently toward another are all good things. We should encourage, applaud, and even potentially partner with their work. But we must take extreme caution not to confuse them with the kingdom of God, not to become enamored with solutions that are rooted in the weapons of the present age, and not to yoke ourselves too intimately with any institution or group, especially any that exercise power over others. What should the kingdom of God look like in each situation? Well, that's difficult to say precisely, although I will propose nine principles in the next chapters. But surely a great start would be to look for actions that embody the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22-23. What is the empire cooking? In considering the first chapter of the book of Daniel, author Brian Zond notes Daniel's refusal to eat from the king's table. His primary reason for that was to remind himself and his fellow exiles of their identity and their true provision and that their true provision came from God. Daniel and compatriots were sending a message to themselves more than they were worried about communicating anything to the empire. How does this apply to our modern situation? Zond notes that Christians don't have dietary laws that help establish their identity and teach them about God's ways. But we do have a battle to maintain our identity while immersed in empire. He argues that the main meals being served up from the kitchen of the empires are a steady diet of consumerism and militarism, which he refers to as mammon and Mars. Empires, and if you don't know what mammon and Mars are, those, uh, those are references to uh, Greek-Roman gods. Um, mammon, the, basically the deity, the divine realm of consumerism, and Mars is uh, god of war, militarism. Empires worship at the altars of the economy and national security. Those become sacred concepts in the world of empire. In the empire, it's the economy, stupid, and we need to maintain our way of life will always trump. Love your neighbor as yourself. Zond writes, quote, prioritizing the economy above principle changes Christians into de facto pagans. The other sacred obsession in the American superpower is security. We guarantee our prosperity by a demonic devotion to the capacity to unleash hyperviolence upon our enemies, end quote. He notes that despite the scriptural call for Israel to trust in God rather than military might, Psalm 20, verse 7, and the commands for the kings of Israel not to multiply their war horses, they simply ignored it, just like every so-called Christian empire has ignored Christ's command to put your sword away. What that means is that for many of us, at least my fellow Americans, there will be a constant tug toward economic prosperity and national security. These will feel like non-negotiable must-haves, but we must resist those urges and seek to, seek to truly see each situation through the lens of the kingdom of God and not allow these shades to cover our lenses and distort our view. Moving forward, the Christian community needs to have a consistent stance on politics and political engagement. 
Without such, we will be prone to being blown back and forth by the prevailing winds of our culture and easily duped, becoming completely ineffective in the world in which we live. Are we going to aim for Calvin's theocratic utopia? I believe this model to be deeply flawed by not allowing for dissent and choice. But what about the Amish withdrawal strategy? That's a clear failure to be salt and light for the world, so it falls short of being a prophetic community. Some may think we should strive for something closer to Wilberforce's engagement with the world, but for the good of the world. There's much to be admired in his efforts, and we may, in some rare instances, find that his approach is necessary to help others. But engaging fully in the world of politics and laws doesn't seem to be a consistent and clear full-time approach for a kingdom community. And the dominionist approach? This method completely ignores the difference in the coming of the kingdom of God and the age to come through Jesus and tends toward coercive methods, which we must reject. We must also recognize that much of our instinct toward politics, at least those of us in the United States, comes from an entitlement that our culture should be dictated by Christian values. Simply because the founders of this country wished for that to wished for that to some degree and presumed Christian values does not mean that they used kingdom methods or even established anything close to a true outpost of God's kingdom. Simply appealing to a time when the country was dominated by a morality rooted in Christian culture is not necessarily the most kingdom-coming approach. It might make us feel more comfortable, but that doesn't mean it's right. With our feet planted in the orienting truths and other reminders that we've considered in this chapter, it's time to move on to consider the simple principles that will guide our actions in a complicated world. Now, that's the end of the chapter. And in moving forward, we're going to move into the next couple chapters, which uh, really get into, um, how do we say, the, the principles of engagement, in a sense, the nine principles that I propose that can direct our thinking in the different contexts and times and situations in which we find ourselves. And then after that, the, there's uh, the next uh, number of chapters in the book go into specific areas and what those principles might look like as we apply how to engage with the world. What, is it? what does it look like, some of the social issues and justice issues and pressing issues of our day? So we're going to take the next couple episodes coming up, and we're going to look through these principles. It's going to just be me and you for a couple more episodes. And then as we get into specific areas, I'm really excited because we're going to have a, a list of just guest after guest as we jump into each area and we're going to talk about the, the principles and how to apply them, but we're going to get some experts in on each area and, and really dig in and, and pick their mind and, and see what it can look like to engage in the world from a kingdom perspective. So I look forward to that. I think it'll be really cool. So that'll be the next uh, just number eight to 10 episodes. We'll see how long it takes to get through all that. If we're really going with someone, we may stop and do a couple episodes. We'll have to see um, how it goes, but we're going to stop there. So I look forward to that coming up in the future. Please make sure to continue 
tuning in. Share the podcast if you enjoy it. Tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. I really appreciate those who do that. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for joining me on the All Things to All People podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, please hit me up at all things to all people podcast at gmail.com and you can get Escaping the Beast or any other of my books or resources at michaelburnsteachingministry.com. We'll see you next time.